Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Today, we welcome to our show independent journalist and the creator of popular information, Judd Legum. Legum says of popular information that it's news for people who give a damn. And in a statement on his webpage, he writes, and I'm going to quote, You are not a spectator, and democracy is not a game. But so much of what is written about politics treats you that way. Popular information is Substack's first politically focused publication and features in-depth, fact-based news and analysis from a progressive point of view. With the elections on the horizon, we can't deny that the results will have a profound impact on the future of the United States and the world. Popular information is meant to help you sift through the daily avalanche of information and give you the necessary facts to form your own opinions. Legum, a lawyer, also founded the publication Think Progressive before leaving to work on Hillary Clinton's campaign. Judd is here with us to share his vast knowledge of the current moment. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Judd. You tweeted after the last January 6th committee hearing that the documents they presented are basically a paper trail that connected Trump and the hate groups that organized the riot at the Capitol. And it appears that that's true, that Trump communicated directly with extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. So where, in your opinion, is the D- is the DOJ, right? How is this you know, new news to them. And what, in your opinion, is going on at the DOJ? You think that there are maybe some indictments coming against who? You know, what's the holdup here? Give me your opinion. Well, you know, I think that they may be waiting for the committee to do their, to finish their work. I know that there's a dispute between um, the chair of the committee and the different members of the committee and the DOJ who wants all the transcripts, not just the the snippets that were presented during the public hearings, but all the transcripts and all the documents that they've uh, they've collected. So that's one explanation that they're just waiting to to accumulate the evidence uh, and then they're going to indict people. You know, I think the other explanation is that they don't want to uh, press charges against high profile political figures and make the DOJ seem partisan. I mean, I think we'll have to wait to see how it plays out, but it could be either way. I think that as the January 6th committee continues its work, and as you see more and more evidence specifically against Trump and the fact that he knew that the crowd was armed, he knew that they were potentially dangerous, and he was really intending himself to go to the Capitol, and he really wanted to push the crowd, the arm, which he knew was armed, to the Capitol. And what you referenced in, in your intro here, that somehow the idea that he was going to, which he did, encourage people to go to the Capitol was not in his prepared remarks so that the high-ranking people in the White House didn't know that, but the ragtag group of people who were involved in organizing January 6th, Ali Alexander, others, they knew, they were discussing the idea that Trump was going to make this call. So I think the evidence is mounting, and what we're going to find out in the next 
months, you would assume, is whether the DOJ is ready to take the risk to make these indictments, because it would be a risk for the DOJ to do it because they might not win. Right. Well, look, one of the mistakes that I believe that prosecutors, and we're going to call the DOJ in this case, Merrick Garland as attorney general, would be prosecuting a criminal case against a whole slew of individuals. You know, pick your poison here. Roger Stone, Mark Meadows, Ali Alexander, the, the whole group of them. It's not his job to worry about the conviction. His job is to prosecute and let the jury decide whether or not the person is guilty of the charges. But I wanted to sort of just delve into you because in your, in your tweet, you talk about the paper trail that connects Trump to the hate groups. I have to be honest, and I've been on television and I've talked about this. I, I truly believe, like anybody that's watching these and anyone that wants to have an open mind to it, that Trump certainly knew. The, the problem for a prosecutor, the problem for the Department of Justice in this case, is being able to use this hearsay testimony that they have and build a circumstantial evidence case. That's going to be very difficult to do, especially against Trump. Now, I believe that Trump will not be indicted as a result of the January 6th hearings. But I do believe people like Jim Jordan, Jared Kushner, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, um, you know, Mark Meadows, um, a, a whole slew of people will be indicted because their fingerprints are actually on a document that talk about things. Everything else that we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson all the way down is all, well, I heard an Arnado speaking to Meadows. And so that's a double hearsay. And so it's the one thing, and I've talked about this on this podcast before, Trump learned at a very young age not to have his fingerprints on anything. And so he doesn't. He learned that from Roy Cohn, the famous mob attorney. And there really are no documents. Now people say, well, what about the recording from, you know, to uh, Brad Raffensperger about finding the votes? He has a way to actually weasel his, himself out of all of these allegations. And that may be one of the reasons why Merrick Garland is so hesitant to bring an indictment charge against Trump. But it should not have any effect upon all of the other people, these, you know, this inner circle of his. It should not have a, there should be no problem with bringing indictments against any of them. Yeah, and I, th I think that the other issue when it comes to Trump, and normally this is a very good thing, but the fact is in the United States, we afford a lot of protection for political speech, even political speech that talks about violence and even political speech that seems inciting. We have a very high bar. And that's good because you don't want people to take speeches and regular uh, commentary by politicians and say that says, you know, we're going to take the fight to X, Y, Z person and have that say, oh, well, this is a violent incitement. You want a high bar. Now, the problem is, is that in this case, you know, Trump was so far over the line that it seems like 
he should be held responsible for what he did that day. But but Judd, but Judd yeah. can we not turn around and say what Trump is going to say, disingenuous as it may be, it wasn't me. Quite frankly, I didn't know what the hell they were doing, right? Roger Stone met with them. Mark Meadows met with them. This one met with them. That one met with But I wasn't there. I didn't tell them what to do. Show me a single document. Show me a single text message. Show me a single voice recording that knew that this was going to go on. So against me, it's all speculation because remember... Trump is a narcissistic sociopath. He doesn't care what happens to any of these people, his children included. So he doesn't care as long as it's not him. That's the that to me is the biggest issue. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you're right. And I think the fact that he doesn't he doesn't he's not on email, he's not sending texts to people. And the fact that to a large extent, I think prosecutors would have to rely on his public words that day and his tweets uh, and things of that nature. Now, I think that, and it'll be interesting, I'm, I'm looking forward to an upcoming hearing uh, that is going to talk about his links to the groups, including the money trail, because I do think you have folks, and maybe these are the folks that might find themselves in legal trouble, not Trump, but you know, one of his top fundraisers, uh, Carolyn Wren, was the one collecting the money uh, that was used to put on the event in the ellipse. And there was a lot of, you know, I don't know if it was the legal term of structuring of that money, but it was distributed to different dark money groups who kind of worked together to put on that event, including the Republican Attorneys General Association, which put out those robocalls. That apparently was with $150,000 that Carol and Wren raised, I believe, from a, the heiress to the public supermarket, Julie Fran Kelly. So I expect that we'll be hearing a lot more about this money. I think that that is going to be a major focus when they look at it. So who was really financing it? Because when you can follow the money, that really shows you who was really organizing this. And so I think we're going to learn more about that because I know the committee has done a lot of subpoenas related to the money trail that enabled them to put the event on. Yeah, look, um, I agree with you. And I agree with you as far as your opinion on the DOJ. I think Merrick Garland is concerned. He does not want to be Bill Barr number two. He does not want to seem partisan. However, we have documentary evidence. We have emails and text messages and handwritten notes by so many of these individuals. I'm not saying that I think Trump should get off. I do not. I think Trump should certainly um, be indicted and I think he should be held accountable for whatever illegalities that they believe in terms of uh, statute that he violated. However, there are others that already have documentary evidence that should have already created at least one indictment, right? I mean, I just don't un- I don't understand it. The only indictments that I, we've seen so far are indictments for people failing to appear before their committee and they're holding them in contempt. This to me, I just I truly don't understand. You know um, what's taking so long, and I think the amount of time that is that it's taking them to actually do something is hurting the Democrats because 
we want we want some action. We want some accountability. We've watched this guy, Trump, run roughshod over this country for the last six years. And I think people are sick and tired of it, which is why his popularity, in my in my opinion, and by polls, is waning. But I want to talk to you for a quick second about you know, Trump and his angling to announce his presidency soon, basically trying to save himself from prosecution. That's what I hear a lot of these pundits talking about. And then there's rumors that Mark Meadows is being set up to take the fall for the entire scheme. And I, I warned him when I was testifying before the House Oversight Committee that things like this will happen. And I warned uh, Jim Jordan the same time. But Trump's, is, you know, but Mark Meadows is essentially, you know, small time, obviously, compared to Trump. But there's still not enough evidence, again, going back to what we were just talking about, to link Trump directly to the January 6th crimes, even though, again, we all know that he's guilty as hell. But someone will have to go down for January 6th. And if not Trump, then who? Right? Because 40, 40 individuals were criminally charged during Watergate. How many do you think will get charged here? And who do you think the top five are? Well, I agree with you that I think that Trump sees a a form of protection in keeping himself active in the political arena, you know, potentially positioning himself to be the 2024 nominee. I think that would certainly complicate matters uh, for for Merrick Garland. If, you know, it's one thing to indict a former president. It's another thing to indict the you know, who would have to be, I mean, I agree his, his popularity is waning. Uh, someone like DeSantis could, could give him a good run, may very well beat Trump, but he would have to be almost a presumptive nominee when he, when he announces. As far as who could be held uh, culpable for this, you know, I think you have to look at the people who were involved in the organization of the riot itself and the collection of people at the Capitol uh, in fomenting that violence. Um, Certainly someone like Kimberly Guilfoyle, who was involved in the fundraising, I think has a significant amount of exposure uh, here. Obviously, you mentioned Mark Meadows, who seemed to be right in the middle of it, you know, from the testimony, not really doing much, uh, but certainly um, aware of everything that was going on, aware that there was really no validity to these claims of fraud, aware of the danger, but yet continue to press forward um, with these, with these claims. Uh, So I think the closer you get to the violence itself, the more knowledge you have of the violence, the more knowledge you had of the scheme and of the legal weaknesses of the scheme. And certainly um, some of the folks who were involved in creating those pretexts, like a John Eastman, I think, uh, certainly hasn't come out of these hearings looking looking very good. Um, those are the folks that I would I would look to. I'm not yet convinced that we're going to see those indictments uh, just because, uh, again, there is, I I don't think any of it would be easy. I think it would all be viewed 
as political. And I think, you know, whether you work for the DOJ or you're a state prosecutor or you're a local prosecutor, prosecutors like to win. They like to file, make charges that are easy wins, and then hopefully they don't even have to take to trial. But anyone they indict related to January 6th is not going to lay down. Maybe maybe they could get a, a couple of guilty pleas around the periphery, but I don't think you're going to get one of the main players to get a guilty plea. And so that's really what you're fighting against is the kind of innate caution of a prosecutor, which outside of a political environment makes some makes some sense. You, you know, you don't want a prosecutor just taking shots and seeing who they could get a jury to to indict. But in this case, um, you know, you did have an attack really on the heart of the democratic process. I agree people are thirsty for some kind of accountability, but it will take a prosecutor uh, who's willing to take a risk. It's not a risk, though, Judd. That's the whole thing. And I, I yell from the mountaintops. If I was actually on a mountain, I'd be yelling from it. It's not your business, prosecutor, to worry about your conviction. Fuck you and your fucking conviction rate. And fuck your future job, whether it's going to be with a Guggenheim Partners or one of the top, you know, white shoe law firms. That's not what your job is supposed to be. Your job is supposed to bring a prosecution to anyone who commits a crime. Whether you think you could win or not, whether you think you could squeeze like they did to me, squeeze a, you know, a guilty plea by threatening my wife or threatening somebody else's children or wife or whoever it may be, their father, their cousin, their brother, right? That's not the job of a prosecutor. And I certainly recommend everybody who's listening to this, read Judge Jed Rakoff's book, you know, Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free. It is exactly on point. Prosecutors do your job. Don't worry about what the end result is going to be. That's my that's my opinion. Because if they I mean, do, I think, I think I think that's you know I I don't I don't disagree with that. You know I think that's especially in a circumstances like this when everyone witnessed what the result of these crimes were. I mean you certainly can't look at what took place on January sixth and also really what's happened before and after where there's an attack on the fundamental mechanisms of democracy and conclude that there wasn't a crime and not just a crime for the people who were at, who were right at the Capitol smashing windows, but the but a crime for the people who were creating the circumstances for which that uh, for which that uh, that occurred. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, whether our system is really uh, capable of of dealing with something like this. I mean, that's really the test. It's, it's like a stress test for the whole democratic process. There was a stress test really to see if there was a transition of power. And now we're seeing a stress test for democracy itself. And, and actually, it goes beyond accountability, because I think what's important to understand is that these efforts are ongoing, meaning that if Trump or really any Republican nominee in 2024 is involved in an election that's anywhere near close because the 2020 election wasn't really that close. I mean, there were we've, we've lived through close elections. 2000 was a close election by all accounts, whether you know you are on the Bush side or the Gore side. That was an election that was decided by a few hundred votes. This was not one of those elections. But if you had an election that's anywhere in the realm of close, you are going to have um, similar efforts. And at that point, you may have and these, these folks are on the ballot, people who are now secretary of state, people who are having high ranking positions 
overseeing the elections who have been parroting the lies that Trump has been pushing about election fraud in 2020, about the system, about voting machines, about drop boxes. Those people will now be potentially in charge. And also all of the state legislatures are spun up. You also have a Supreme Court now that is different and that is that is ready to potentially um, side with Trump. Because, you know, you did have those challenges involving Pennsylvania prior to 2020, where they were trying to uh, overturn some of the decisions of the state Supreme Court with regards to, you know, when they're going to accept the ballots or the absentee ballots. And those were rejected. Will the court do that this time? Well, we've seen the courts willing to do some fairly, some fairly radical things over the last couple of months. So establishing that there will be accountability for the 2020 is important, not just for that, but also for protecting 2024. That may be the most important reason why people need to understand that you will, you can't get in trouble. They need to see that you can't act like Rudy Giuliani acted over the course of uh, a couple of years and get away with it because if, if they realize there's no accountability, it will happen again and it could potentially be uh, a lot worse uh, this second time around. Yeah. So let me give you my five picks if I can. And tell me, you know, just real quick, Roger Stone. I believe Roger Stone is definitively going to be indicted. I believe the same thing with, um, with Bannon, with Steve Bannon. I also believe Michael Flynn. I believe Rudy Colludi, Drunken Giuliani, definitively. And I also think Jim Jordan. I think each and every one of them will ultimately be indicted for the January 6th. That's my opinion. Let's wait to see what's going to happen, hopefully. And these are just five picks. I mean, remember, there were 40 that were in criminally you know, charged for Watergate. I suspect that there's going to be at least 40, if not more, uh, regarding, you know, regarding the January 6th. But I want to move on for a quick second and say, not to stray too far, though, from the January 6th hearings. So far, it's been like great theater with an amazing cast of character. And my buddy who was recently on this podcast, Norm Eisen, calls the hearings TikTok Watergate. Anyway, who do you think has been the most impactful witness so far? And what are some of the insights that you have into the proceedings? Well, to take the second part of your question first, I, I was pretty skeptical of this committee uh, to start, just honestly. You know, I thought they were taking a very long time before anything was public. Um, they seemed to be very committed to engaging um, you know, Liz Cheney, and I wasn't sure how she was going to approach it or what her intentions were. Uh, but I think as we've seen these, um, these hearings play out, uh, I think you have to give the, a lot of the committee a lot of credit, both for even though it occurred, you know, more, even though the public hearings occurred more than a year after uh, the January 6th attack, capturing a lot of attention structuring the hearings in a way that understands the modern media landscape where they're providing, they're not showing hours of recorded depositions. They're not having these sort of extremely lawyerly back and lengthy back and forths with witnesses. They're really laying out a narrative, a story so that people can understand and gain a greater understanding of what occurred. And I also think they are legitimately adding 
to the body of knowledge about what Trump knew, what the people around him knew, what their intentions were. Because I think there really was a narrative. And when you look at the the faces in the crowd and the guy with the horns and everything, there's this idea that this wasn't that serious. You know, I mean, it was scary, but come on, what are these people really going to do? It's a bunch of clouds. But I think they've established piece by piece that this was a serious plan. This was not something that was just slapped together or that happened spontaneously. This was something that was a true attack on democracy. They made that case. They've captured attention. They've gotten millions of people to watch. So I give them a lot of credit uh, for that. I think, um, you know, Cassie Hutchinson probably has, in my view, has been the most impactful witness, just both because she was a new character. We didn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of people who knew about her. They they established, I thought it was really effective when they kind of established that she was the person in the room. They showed that um, map of the White House and they showed her sitting kind of right in the center uh, between between Meadows and Trump, sort of placing her. She becomes almost the eyes and ears of the public observing all of this, playing a part in it. You know, And I think they probably were, because she was cooperating so much, painted her in, in perhaps a more positive light than, than maybe she even deserved as a result of her cooperation. But I understood that. But then, you know, really giving people insight into what was Trump saying and thinking into those critical moments right before he gave that speech? What were his intentions that day? So I really think that you know, there's been a lot of interesting witnesses. There's been a lot of witnesses who provided some insight, but I think she, and I think since her testimony, really changed the complexion of how people viewed that day because of her unique position. And essentially, she's the one who's given us a a perspective into the group of people that thus far are ignoring the subpoenas and some of them are being held in contempt and some of them aren't, but that part of the story. I also think she's essentially made it critical for someone like Pat Cipollone to come in and testify because she presented him as such a key figure, warning that we're going to be charged with all the crimes if this goes forward. So I thought that was that was pretty that was pretty riveting. And I think, you know, even if, you know, and, and obviously there, there's only so much you can get out of just kind of expanding public knowledge, but ultimately they will be doing a service for history for people to really understand what happened. And I think everyone has a much better understanding and a lot of these myths about what was really going on that day and what the people involved really wanted, which was to really just keep Trump in there, even though they knew he lost, to keep him in there for four years and to do it however possible, including by use of violence and intimidation. And that's what they've that's what they've established. So I think my overall takeaway from it has has been, you know, it, it they probably will go down as some of the most effective public hearings that have ever been held in Congress. Because I think Congress, you know, it's it's really hard for members of Congress 
not to just sit, get on a soapbox, not to just talk and let their views to kind of stick to a game plan. And, and you have to give them credit for showing some discipline with that. And the, and the, the payoff has been people have in fact been paying attention. And I think people will pay attention as we get, you know, through the end part of these hearings. So interesting. It's, I think it was really an unfair question to ask you. It's kind of like a trick question because each and every hearing has exceeded my expectation. I mean, just as an example, because I don't want to waste too much time on it, but I would say another and one who would, in my estimation, certainly um, go head to head with the Cassidy Hutchinson hearing um, before the, you know, the committee would be Wandrea Moss and her mom, Lady Ruby. There's so much that came out of that. First of all, they were very relatable. On top of that, what were they doing? They wanted to do their civic duty. They were working, uh, you know, at the, at the ballot box and so on. And, of course, Rudy Giuliani making statements about them passing around, you know, cocaine and that this whole thing, you know, was one big giant, um, you know, fuck Trump type of, uh, you know, scenario when in fact it was a U.S. They claimed it was a USB. Who knows? Right. All I can say to you is that um, it was actually a ginger mint, not a USB that they claimed that they were messing around with the machines with. But this really went to discount and to show the pervasiveness of the lie, the big lie that they were promoting, which in essence was the basis for trying to overturn the entire election and to keep, as you stated, you know, keep Trump in power for another four years. So I think each and every time that they have a hearing, we're learning from a different perspective, a different part of this overall, um, you know, shtick that Trump and his inner circle were trying to pull off. And I think it's, um, as you said, it's historical Will it create the result that we all want, which is the indictment and incarceration of the, you know, orange-crusted Mandarin Mussolini? I don't think so. Uh, hopefully it'll be enough. And, and I'm going to go back, you know, a couple of questions ago where we were talking about 2024. I don't believe Trump is running. I believe that every single thing that he keeps talking about in terms of, you know, I'm really close. And so uh, I believe it's part of the grift. It's part of the con that I talk about all the time. Uh, first of all, if in fact, you know, as it was in a, um, a CNN article about Trump's decision that he's going to run, he's not going to run. The, he would have to, of course, announce it through an exploratory committee. We don't have that. There certainly is no FEC filings at the moment. But then again, he doesn't think much of the FEC on top of that, one of the things that he's going to need is somebody who's going to continue this uh, online digital money raise, which Brad Parscale was the guy who's been behind this since 2015. You may have seen the other day the Brad Parscale, Katrina Pearson um, text messages that were going by. I do not believe that Trump could possibly trust Parscale anymore uh, based upon the statements that were made. So who's Trump now going to hire? First of all, nobody wants to work for him simply because, one, he doesn't pay, and two, because I don't think that anybody who is serious about this um, believes that he could possibly win. So, again, that's just my my take on to this. But yeah. I, I want to ask you— 
Go ahead. Yeah, I, I would just, just just one quick point. You know, I think it's interesting that as these hearings have gone on, and you know, we we've, we've been doing this during the primary season, and you've seen quite a few candidates that have been endorsed by Trump not only lose but perform really poorly. You've seen his Trump's popularity continue to go down or at least not not recover. And it's interesting to think, you know, are these hearings really, you know, having an impact on the public such that they're damaging Trump's ability to maintain uh, his base? And and I agree with you 100 percent that the reason why he's kind of pumping up this idea of he of whether he runs, um, you know, I, I wouldn't I don't have any insight into it, but I I don't I wouldn't object to your idea that he's not running. But it's a it's a money grip. The idea that he is going to run is really critical for the money he's raising for his Save America committee that's used as kind of a slush fund for his Truth Social and the and the media company he's getting. If he, all of a sudden he just becomes a former president who's embroiled in scandal, all of those things become much less interesting. If mm-hmm. he is the potential 2024 nominee. Right. All of those things be, are very interesting. So he's going to he's known for many, many, many years, well before 2015, that just the notion that you might run for president is good for business. It is good for getting attention on you. And I think he will absolutely keep this up. You won't find out he's not running until the very, very, very last possible moment. And even then, I'm sure he'll talk about. Well, he's going to jump in after this state or, or that state. Absolutely. He's never really going to admit he's not running. You'll just have to wake up one day and someone else will be the nominee. I, I totally agree with you. Now, Judd, you left Think Progress after 13 years and you launched Popular Information, um, a newsletter about politics and power in the year of 2018, calling it accountability journalism for people who give a damn. Nice. I applaud you on that one. How's it going so far? And how do you feel about the current state of political journalism? Do you agree that, you know, the likes of Tucker Carlson uh, of the world should not be allowed to call themselves journalists or, you know, or what they do? They shouldn't be allowed to call it news. Let me just before I, I let you answer that, Sean Hannity came right out and he said, I'm not a journalist. I'm a talk show host. Shouldn't Tucker Carlson be doing the same thing? Uh, yeah, whatever Tucker Carlson calls himself, he's not a journalist. And I think it's interesting because when he gets sued for defamation, his lawyers come in and say, hey, every anyone who's fair who would listen to Tucker Carlson would know not to take uh, what he does seriously. But yes, I, I think as far as the state of political journalism overall, there really is a, a crisis of, of trust. People don't know, you know what to uh, believe. You know, I kind of started this newsletter because I do think that there needs to be new mechanisms and new venues for people to find trusted guides through this information to uncover the information and to present it to them in a way that's verifiable for them and that they can have confidence in. And, you know, television, television news isn't always the best format for that. And, you know, I think there's just been a lot of failures, you know, for me, dating back all the way uh, to the Iraq war and and moving forward. So, um, you know, we do have a problem. Uh, 
but you know, I think there's no there's no silver bullet solution. It's just day by day, story by story. Um, you know, trying to uh, get facts out there and trying to kind of steer the ship uh, in a better direction so that we can get back to a place where there's some kind of common understanding uh, of facts. But I think you know, with people like like not, and it's not really not just Trump. There's a whole constellation of people, and I think DeSantis is actually has a lot of those, you know, a lot of the same tactics as Trump as far as just whatever it is, you just kind of go after it. You don't need to worry about what's true and what's false, but he's a little more savvy about it. You know, he's not, he's got a very professional operation all the way up and down. He knows how to, um, he knows how to present an image of himself that I think is a little more comforting uh, to people and that has a more of a veneer of professionalism. So it goes, goes well beyond uh, well beyond Trump and it, operating in that kind of environment uh, as a as someone who's putting news out and as a, as part of the media is very challenging, you know. And I think that's that's something that everyone uh, is grappling with. Yeah. So look, uh, I I agree with you, and it's actually there have been polls that show that a head-to-head contest right now between Trump and DeSantis, DeSantis beats him beats him by about four points. Now, of course, there's a plus or minus there of about five points, but regardless, it just goes to show you. And I don't believe that to say, I believe that you're going to see a whole slew of individuals who are interested in being president in 2024 on the Republican side that are going to come after Trump on that line. And, uh, and I believe that it's going to be a race. I don't think it's going to be just Trump the way everybody's talking about it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that particularly. And I think another factor is, of course, Biden has a very low popularity rating, you know, and it's he's got a deal. He's dealing with inflation. He's dealing with the continued pandemic. So for a Republican, you know, this is your shot because Biden may be a quite a weak candidate in 2024. I mean, one one thing I know, you know, kind of following politics for a number of years is Things could look a lot different in November 2024 than they do now. Maybe inflation's under control. Maybe the pandemic is more in the rearview mirror. Maybe the economy is doing well by then, and maybe Biden is a strong candidate. But it, it, there's a lot of question marks about that right now. And so I think Republicans are champing at, champing at the bit. And I do think a lot of people are going to run. And I do think that one of the thi- over the last six months, you've seen a lot of people become not necessarily they're standing up to Trump but more that they're not going to defer to Trump. They don't view him as someone who needs to be um, deferred to and that they're going to stand in line behind him. I I think they view him as vulnerable. I agree with you. So let me ask you this then. Who do you go to when you want honest news or opinion, right? I mean, who do you trust? Because it's one of the biggest problems that that we're facing right now. You don't know who to trust. You don't know which news channel is providing. You don't know which app is actually legitimate and which is not. The misinformation, the disinformation, the malinformation that's going on right now. This is all, this is all really um, messing with the heads of the American people. And I think it's going to cause a serious problem when it comes November for voting. Yeah, I think that um, it's challenging. But I do think the reality is there's such a volume of information, but and there's there's more bad information 
out there than ever before, but there's also more good information out there that's been ever before. And there are some really so excellent you, outlets. So who? Who yeah, do you pro, trust? Pro, I think ProPublica does some amazing reporting. If you want to know how the tax system works, if you want to know how money gets funneled um, from very wealthy people into different political causes, I think they do really excellent investigative work. And it's all you know backed up by, by documentation. Uh, and then obviously, you know, a lot of the more um, and then I think depending on what outlet you're looking for, what what topic you're looking for, there's a lot of outlets that are on uh, very specific um, issues like a stat news about science and, and medicine and the pandemic. That was something that was a place where I went to all the time. And I do think if you look at the not necessarily the opinion pages, but the journalism that's done by the most prominent outlets like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, it's often excellent. Um, so I do think that there is a lot of places uh, to find quality news. You know, for me, a, a lot of the work that I do involves kind of following the money trail, looking to see, you know, how powerful individuals and corporations are using money uh, to to influence the process. And so I like to look at the primary source documents. But if you've got a, a real job, instead of a being a newsletter writer like myself, you don't necessarily have time for that. But I think there's a lot of good, um, a lot of really good uh, choices out there. Nice, because I have a hard time finding them. So another journalism question for you. Well, sort of. What the hell is with Glenn Glenwald? I mean, didn't he used to be some sort of a good guy? And now I understand he's seeking to be the right wing's go-to intellectual. As oxymoronic as that sounds, because right wing and intellectualism are so rarely spoken in the same sentence. Tell me, if you know it, what the fuck's Greenwald's gig? Well, I don't know everything about it, but I will say someone, you know, I've I've known Glenn Greenwald for many years. I first encountered him as I was living in D.C., uh, and we were both doing work around the Patriot Act uh, during uh, the Bush years. And I think, you know, he started off in the way that I knew him uh, was around civil li civil liberties issues. And that's what he was passionate about and wrote about. Uh, and I, for many years, admired his work. Uh, on that score. I think since then, uh, he's he's kind of pivoted from that into sort of utilizing just a, a critique of everything that's not on the far right, really using Tucker Carlson's platform to build his own newsletter business like myself. We're actually both on the same platform, Substack, and exploiting that using his past as someone who was admired by the left to kind of gain a cachet and credibility on the right, because there's nothing that uh, somebody on Fox News likes more than someone who's who's seen the light about uh, the left in the country. So I think using that evolution that he's had and using that to uh, build his own brand among the right is it's what's going on. And I think over the time he's become really an apologist uh, for for Fox News and a lot of the very reactionary um, politics uh, that play such a significant role in our country today. Yeah, it's, look, I, I don't know what his gig is either, other than to say 
he's found an avenue within which to make money, and he's willing to sacrifice his ideals in order for, you know, another dollar a month subscription, I guess. I, I don't I don't know because I don't if believe civil, if you're a civil libertarian, the politics of of Fox News and and Tucker Carlson doesn't exactly mesh up with what you might be interested in. So he's clearly interested in something else that's not civil liberties. I absolutely agree with you. Now, Judd, you recently wrote a great piece in Popular Information, and I recommend all of my listeners to go and to check out this newsletter. The name of the piece was Who Broke Capitalism? which is all about the major American corporations that have funneled money into governor's races, you know, to affect the, you know, what ultimately to affect the abortion outcome in states like Michigan, Florida, and Ohio. If you do me a favor, tell my listeners who these companies are and why they are pouring money into canceling abortion. I mean, why do they even care? I mean, how does it possibly serve them to have legislation or a decision that the Supreme Court just gave that outlaws Roe v. Wade? Well, it, it really shouldn't. Uh, but I think what you have is, you know, now now you have the Supreme Court decision that ended the constitutional right for abortion. Now you're going to have it play out in all any number of states. There's some states where trigger laws went in right away, but there's a number of states, Kansas, Michigan, Arizona, Pennsylvania, all down the line, where they're going to be deciding and the outcome of the attorney general's races, the outcome of the governor's races, the outcome of the legislative races are all going to determine the path forward in those states and whether there will be reproductive rights in those states. And what mm -hmm. I've tracked in the newsletter is, and this is something that you know not a lot of people are aware of, but major corporations like Comcast, like AT&T, Wells Fargo, uh, I even did a piece about the Match Group, which which does Match and Tinder and OkCupid and dating sites, they're donating not $100 or $1,000 or $10,000. They're donating hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases millions of dollars, to groups like the Republican Attorneys General Association, which is actively raising money and saying the money that's donated, we are going to use that to elect attorneys general who will overturn uh, reproductive rights. Just to give you a really tangible example of this, in Wisconsin, there's a current attorney general, there's a law that was, was passed in 1849 that bans all abortions. It sort of just sat there on the books. It wasn't enforceable because Roe v. Wade was in place. Mm -hmm. Now that Roe v. Wade is, is gone, and the constitutional protection is gone, the attorney general is saying, this law is from 1849. We are not going to enforce it. But the Republican Attorneys General Association is already reserved $650,000 in ads to defeat him and replace him with a Republican candidate that will enforce that law. So that's what's at stake. And they get that money in many cases from ma those major corporations uh, that I was listening. And just to kind of wrap this around and show how these issues are connected, I mentioned the Republican Attorneys General's Association before because they were the ones who sent the robocalls out on January 6th to build the crowd at the Capitol. But yet even after that, and even knowing that this money will now be used to overturn abortion rights, you still have corporations that are sending hundreds of thousands of dollars 
uh, to Raga. And, and this actually just came out. I read this story right before I came on to talk with you that this Sunday at a resort in Palm Springs, major corporations are going to be golfing and deep sea fishing with the Republican Attorney General's Association. And they had to pay $150,000 or more to attend this retreat. So that's the kind of thing that I don't think that there's a lot of awareness around about how much money is being pumped into the system. And then you kind of see the result. You're like, okay, well now Ruby wins beat over days. Now all these reactionaries are being elected to state office. It doesn't happen on its own. We don't just stumble into this. There's a lot of powerful forces behind it. Do these corporations, the CEOs, or even employees of these corporations understand that the overturning of Roe v. Wade has some real serious consequences, especially when you have a completely out-of-touch Supreme Court that's going on. You know, there's a case that's out there right now, a 26, 27-year-old guy who raped a 10-year-old girl. And she didn't, she's from Indianapolis, and she had to leave Indianapolis in order to go get an abortion. Because in Indiana, um, in Indianapolis, you're only able to get an abortion within... The girl was from the girl was from Ohio. And I'm she sorry, had to you're, you're right. She had to, she was but, from Ohio. I, had to I, travel yeah, right to in, right to Indianapolis because in Ohio there was a you had to have the abortion as early as six weeks into the pregnancy. But she was six weeks and three days. This is a ten year old girl for God's sakes who was you know violently raped by this man and now impregnated. I mean. Do they not understand that there are consequences to the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Do they not understand that that's just the beginning to this out-of-control, southern white Christian coalition, evangelical, you know, I, you know, idealizing Supreme Court that next it's going to be Ogerberfeld, then after that it's going to be God knows what, and they're just going to keep going, claiming it's not the decision of the court, but rather it should be, you know, the decision of the states, and we're going to have all sorts of ramifications coming out of this thing? Yeah, I don't think they've totally absorbed it yet, you know, to be honest with you, Michael, because on the one hand, you do have a lot of corporations, a lot of major corporations like an Amazon um, and others who are saying, oh, you know, we really want to um, protect the rights of our employees. We're going to pay for our employees if they need to travel to to receive an abortion or whatever other care they need. But they haven't really gotten their heads around the systemic issue, which is that they're continuing to support the kinds of elected officials that are imposing these sort of severe restrictions. You know, just in Ohio, the reason why there's that six month ban is because the governor there, Mike DeWine, in 2019, uh, passed this six week abortion bill, so called heartbeat bill. Now, for three years, it sat just on the books, but it was not enforceable because of this, uh, because of this decision. But this, the same day, the Supreme Court uh, put out that decision. Mike DeWine signed an executive order putting that into force. So these things, you know, these things have consequences, but, you know, corporations are willing to put out these press releases. They'll, they'll set up a fund to fund travel, but are they really to really fundamentally put their money behind what they say their values are? I think that's, that's still very much 
uh, an open question. It's certainly something that I'm going to be tracking very closely uh, in the months ahead as these play out, because these are very consequential decisions that are going to have to play out. You know, even in Indiana, where this 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 where this girl who had horrible um, traumatic uh, rape that happened to her had to travel, you know, the legislature there is ready to impose a ban or is they're going to call a special session to consider a ban so that, you know, next time she might not be able to, uh, you know, someone in that circumstances might not be able to travel in Indiana. So there's a lot of things going on. Yeah. So same subject. All right. Because you have like Coke Industries. And when I was the vice chair of the RNC Finance Committee, uh, you know, there was myself and a few and three other people. We raised a ton of money. You know, that was, of course, before Trump really showed himself to be the fucking asshole that he is. But you know, um, Coke Industries gave quite a bit of money to the Trump campaign. But now Coke Industries just got an EPA award for clean practices. I mean, can you go figure, right? And a while ago, Charles Koch said that they'd made some mistakes backing certain candidates. But now it seems like the candidates may be the ones making the mistake by taking Koch's money because of their connections to Russia. Are they still operating in Russia despite, you know, um, Putin's war on the Ukraine? And is Coke still as craven as it used to be? Well, I think the answer is yes. You know, that's something I did a lot of reporting on was Coke's continued operations in Russia. They defended it for for many weeks. Uh, but as pressure grew, as as the conduct of Russia became more and more indefensible, they eventually said now, it's not possible for me to go over there and, and check out the glass plants and the other kinds of operations they have in Russia. But they said that they were they were pulling out. So that's that's the best information we have on that. But, you know, I, I do remember what you referred to, which was that Wall Street Journal profile where Charles Koch said, you know, he's, he's turning over a new leaf. He wants to be uh, bipartisan. He wants to take a new path. And they certainly spend a lot of time, you know, trying to find uh, ways to to depict themselves in that way. I'll just say, as someone who looks at a lot of campaign finance filings, if you look at the super PACs that have been that are active for the midterms, the the main super PACs for the Republicans in uh, the Senate and the House, the uh, you know the NR the NRSC, the NRCC, all the main groups have huge donations, both from the Coke PAC, but also direct corporate donations. And they're still overwhelmingly, almost exclusively uh, supporting Republicans, including many of the Republicans uh, that voted to overturn the election. They're one of the top donors uh, to Republicans that overturned the election. So I think that that Wall Street Journal article was a lot of uh, a lot of PR and the the basis for them repositioning themselves as some sort of bipartisan, cross-partisan uh, entity is just to make themselves, you know, more effective and influential. But there's really no substance uh, behind it on a couple of issues. Uh, they're willing to go, um, you know, cross-partisan. You know, they'll they'll say they're for criminal justice reform, but really what they're about is you know, uh, the, the seizure of, of corporate corporate assets when corporations commit crimes, you know, there's something in it for them. 
uh, when you when you drill down on any of the on any of these issues. Yeah, and look, they're very smart and they're very clever. You know, the CEO, uh, this guy um, Robertson, in April of 2022. I mean, they put out these great press statements. They have this glass company that's there uh, that they put out these statements that say um, all. You know, other Coke companies, none of with operating assets in Russia have ended or are ending business activities there. Right. This is coming from their CEO or are. Right. I mean, what does that mean? Oh, yeah. We're we're figuring out how to extricate ourselves. You know, they have 600 employees there. Their big concern is that the government of Russia will take over this plant, which, of course, you know, they have the ability to do. And then they'll lose that asset as part of their overall Coke industry, you know, conglomerate. However, However, something that I think people should understand is that Coke Industries is the second largest privately owned business in America with $115 billion in annual revenue. And they're worried about a glass plant? Seriously? That they're also manufacturing glass in, I think it's Wichita, Kansas? And this is what they're worried about as opposed to separating themselves out especially during this time. Now, I'm not saying that if, in fact, that they can finally put an end to this war and we could figure out how to work with Russia. Uh, I mean, we should try to work with everyone, but you can't work with someone who has no, uh, you know, no inhibition in terms of bombing a school or a hospital or, you know, buildings simply because... He wants to simply because he's trying to make a statement and take over Ukraine. I just don't I don't get it. I don't understand these people and I don't understand why they would put their overall business at risk over one, you know, over one small piece of it. I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, to me and and I tried to grapple with the same kind of questions, but I think to me, it's what this whole issue with Russia and their reluctance to pull out of Russia had less to do with Russia and more to do with China, where they're even more heavily invested. And they were very reluctant to set a precedent that violations of human rights or uh, military aggression should uh, require them to change their business practices. Russia is not a major, as you said, they're an enormous company. Russia is not a major part of it because they're not a major economic force in the world compared to a lot of other countries. But China definitely is. And I think that there's a lot there was a lot of concern. My my impression, although I don't have, you know, firm evidence of this, but I'll just tell you my impression was that that was driving a lot of it. It was the principle that they should just be continue to operate and kind of keep things status quo regardless of any human rights violations by any country. And that was the line that they wanted uh, to draw, but they were unable to uh, hold the line. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. Yes. So, okay, Judd, so look, the hour goes by quick when you're having a fun conversation or not so fun conversation in this you know specific case. So I have one last question for you. It's obvious that we need to vote in more pro-abortion and anti-filibuster Democrats to win in November. There's, that's, I mean, that just seems like an easy statement of fact. But how much difference do you think can be made in these red states? Because I hate to think that any place in America, 
is a lost cause. But there's some seriously corrupt and gerrymandered states that, in all fairness, are impossible for Democrats to get through now. What can we be doing differently or better to change red states back to blue? Because, look, Judd, let's face it. The Democrats are just better for the working people and the middle class. My real question to you and really about them, why don't they know it? Well, I think it's a difficult I don't think I, I do. I have a, a somewhat optimistic view on this. I don't think there are any states that are lost causes. You know, even in my career in politics, it wasn't so long ago that Virginia was considered a very red state. Uh, and then it became a purple to blue state. It might be trending back, back red, but I think a state can change uh, from time to time. I think the real core is Democrats are doing quite well among college educated uh, voters, but they really need to speak to uh, working people. And I think it's going, they're going to need uh, to be able to take on uh, the wealthy uh, and the powerful. You know, the Democrats have been in, in power uh, for a couple of years now, though they have very narrow margins in the House and Senate. But you still have those Bush tax cuts from 2017 are still uh, in place. And I think policies that tax the very wealthy or that require a little more of, a, of the very wealthy billionaires, corporations, and that give a little more to working people, make their lives, allow people to have who have families to take care of their children, to take time off when when they have a new baby, to take time off when they're sick, to make a living wage. If Democrats can do that and show that they can deliver to people, whether they're living in Texas or whether they're living in upstate New York or wherever they are, I think that that is going to be where you find success and where some of the complexion of these states might change. As long as the economic circumstances of working people remain stagnant or declining, there's going to be a lot of unrest. And that's when you have the risk of someone like Trump coming in and winning. He didn't win by coming in and saying, I'm going to help wealthy people and cut taxes uh, for the wealthy and corporations. He came in and saying, I'm going to take on Goldman Sachs. I'm going to take on all of these corrupt, powerful forces, and, and then the people are going to rise up. I mean, he there's a lot of things he did wrong, but I think Trump knew that that was the winning message, and it maintains the winning message. And the key is to combine that winning message with actual policies that would help those people, rather than just rather than just the rhetoric. And that's that's the unfinished business. And it's not easy. I don't play. I don't. I don't say that I have the answer of how to get it done. I understand there's all sorts of complexities to the legislative process, but that's really what it comes down to. You've got to improve the lives of those people and reform that coalition between working people and, you know, the professional, the professional class, kind of the blue collar and the white collar and, and, and bring them together. And that's a winning coalition. Yeah, I think what he really meant when you were saying that he's going to take on Goldman Sachs, I think he was meaning I'm going to take on their checks as donations. <laughs> so look, Chuck, let me thank you for joining me uh, today on Maya Culpa. I truly appreciate it. My, you know, my only request to all my listeners and uh, whoever you, you know you pump this out to is that you just vote in November, right? You got to get out there. We have no choice but to vote. We have to make a stand. I believe the Gen X, Y, Zers. I believe women. 
right now, whether Republican, Democrat, whether you like Trump's policies or not, makes no difference to me. He as an individual is wrong for this country. I believe that the message that's coming out of the Supreme Court is wrong for this country. And I think we have no choice but to beat them in the polls. And I certainly hope that the Democrats listen to you, listen to your paper, uh, you know, and get out there and make a difference by voting. That's pretty much my my statement. So, Judd, I just want to thank you for joining me today and um, wish you the best. And obviously, we'll have you back. Well, thanks a lot, Michael. Enjoyed it. And I'll see you soon, my friend. And now for today's mea culpa. What's hard to fathom the amount of hate it would take to want to storm the Capitol and kill Nancy Pelosi, as apparently every single seething insurrectionist wanted to do on January 6th. And let's face it, that sort of hate doesn't just happen overnight. You've got to really invest in your subject, find all the reasons why your hate is justified, and then be ready to throw your life away when you finally decide to do something about it. Late last week, the Justice Department recommended that Guy Reffitt be sentenced to 15 years in prison. Reffitt is the first of the January 6th insurrectionists to be convicted at trial. His sentence was upgraded to terrorism because his actions were calculated to influence or affect the conduct of government by intimidation or coercion or to retaliate against government conduct. On that fateful day, Reffitt attacked Capitol Police officers and then entered the Capitol armed with a handgun and went searching for Nancy Pelosi. The fucking idiot had a camera strapped to his helmet that captured all the terror on tape. Everyone in and around the plot to overthrow the government seems to have been filmed themselves for posterity. For them, I suppose, it was going to be a glorious day of death, mayhem, and Kodak moments. Reffitt was a leader in the Texas Three Percenters, a gang of gun enthusiasts and big government haters. The three percenters believe in the ability of citizen volunteers with ordinary weapons to successfully resist the United States military. They support this belief by claiming that only around 3% of American colonists fought the British during the American Revolution. It's hard to know if that's exactly true, but overall, three percenters are considered one of the most dangerous extremist groups in North America full of felons, domestic abusers, and even some right-wing politicians like Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert and Illinois State Representative Chris Miller, the Illinois House did vote to censor Miller for attending the January 6th Save America rally, but he's still in office setting policy. Interesting sidebar, a couple of three percenters were also involved in the kidnapping attempt on Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But back to the sentencing of Guy Reffitt, that 15 years that the DOJ arranged for him is likely a warning shot to other three percenters and their ilk that says cooperate or rot with Reffitt in jail. January 6th blurred a whole lot of lines, but a 15-year sentence is clear, really very fucking clear. It's justice and finally an indicator that the rule of law is starting to kick in. Knowing that Reffitt is still safe behind bars probably won't help Nancy Pelosi sleep at night, but it does bode well for the democracy as a whole.
and thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. Oh.